Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guests today are Jana Randolph and Alessandra Speciale, co-authors of Mario Draghi, The True Story of the Man Who Saved the Euro. This book was first published in Italian by Rizzoli in 2019 and in an updated version in 2021. Mario Draghi, the president of the European Central Bank from 2011 to 19, and Italy's prime minister from 21 to 22, has acquired mythical status. Taking the ECB's helm three years into Europe's seemingly unsolvable financial crisis, Draghi, with his governing approach, diplomatic skills, and willingness to test the boundaries of the bank's mandate, stabilised markets, and saved the currency. He will be most remembered for his July 2012 pledge to do, quote, whatever it takes to preserve the euro. The authors write, quote, so simple a phrase delivered at the right time in front of the right audience, it will hang on as a warning to investors when Draghi is long gone that central bankers in Europe are ready to defend their currency against speculative attacks brought on by people not quite aware of their resolve. According to Draghi's successor, Christine Lagarde, these were, quote, the three most successful words in central banking history. Important they were, yes, critical to the continued existence of the euro even, but there was a lot more to Draghi's ECB than those three magic words. Books from inside the ECB by Massimo Rostagno and Pedro Gustavo Teixeira have covered these years in broad policy terms, but so far, only Randolph and Speciale have written a reporter's fly-on-the-wall account. Jana Randolph is Bloomberg's senior European economics correspondent based in Frankfurt, and since July, Alessandro Speciale has headed Bloomberg's Zurich Bureau after doing the same in Rome. But before that, he worked with Jana as Bloomberg's ECP correspondent from 2013 until 2019. Uh, hello to you both. Hello, very good being here. Hello, happy to be here. Let's start with the story of how you came to write this book. Who was the first mover? Did you interview officials for it specifically, or did you double it up with the journalism you were doing? And, and also, how did you break down the chapters between you? So let's start with Jana. Well, I remember sitting in the office listening to uh, that very famous Draghi speech in London in uh, 2012. And um, I remember looking at my colleagues and saying, you know, at one point, someday, someone will write a book about this. And um, of course, nothing came of it for for quite some time. But the idea stuck in my head. um, and, And about two years before the end of this term, that was the moment when when it was time to, to bring it back to life. Alessandro had long arrived um, by then. So I remember asking him, he looked at me, and I think it took like three seconds, maybe five, to think about it. And then um, he said, yes, let's do it. Yeah, and then we started work in early 2018, went back to the archives, um, looked at the whole body of work we you know, had produced ourselves, what colleagues had written. And then we started to ask um, more and more and more people. We traveled quite a lot across Europe, uh, went to the US to interview people. In the end, it was about 60 interviews. Um, we did a lot of informal conversations as well. And then, uh, yeah, the writing was was certainly the, the hardest part. And uh, we I think we shared that quite well, writing uh, and editing each other and stitching it together. And Alessandra, did did you tend to take the lead on the uh, the background, the Italian background, or or how did it work? Yeah, I mean, we divided up chapters, so we we came up with an outline together, and then we sort of divided chapters uh, uh, in terms of who would do the first draft for each chapter. But uh, Jana had also prepared and I had added to it a sort of master file with all the information that we wanted to put in and it was an enormous work and extremely useful because we had a very detailed timeline also on a daily basis of what had happened to Draghi in the ECB and in Europe connected to links to our stories and basically when we finished to write the draft for one chapter we swapped so I edited her, she edited me and this thing went usually for a couple of rounds. And then uh, I think it's fair to say that it took us a couple of chapters to find our footing. I don't know if this feels uh, when people read it, but I definitely have the, the feeling that some some I'm happier about some of the latter chapters than about the first ones. And, and the other thing, of course, that I being Italian and Jana being German and our uh, work language being English, so we wrote the book in English. And then, uh, which was not the, uh, the native language for any of us. 
and then and then the book was translated, including to Italian. How long was the process, the actual writing process, as opposed to the research? I think I started um, the very first chapter um, in March of 2019, uh, while I was still working, and Alessandro was was off, I believe, at that time. But yeah, March, um, and then we handed in the first draft to the publishers the start of July. That was pretty quick. Yeah, the the bulk of the writing was done in a couple of, I mean, at least on my part, was done in a couple of months that I was on paternity leave. So I was on paternity leave for several months, and and two of those I kind of uh, set set aside for the book. Normally, I I should say, I I interview people about brand new books. They're usually coming out the day of the interview. But the difference with this one was I'm I'm an ECB watcher myself, and I've been waiting for somebody to do, do for the ECB what? Bob Woodward and David Wessel did for the Federal Reserve. So I was pretty excited when I saw the book coming out in Italian and then in Spanish, and I was waiting for it to come out in English, and it never did. Can you tell us what happened there? Is there a chance that this book or a version of this book could come out in English in the future? We've never given up hope, but um, at this point, it's probably a bit unlikely. And and a lot of it comes down to um, unfortunate timing, I would say. Um, when When we went shopping for publishers, a lot of the ones that were based in London, the English-speaking um, community, they, it was just after Brexit and, and everybody was telling us essentially, well, an EU topic, I'm not sure that's going to fly. Um, go go look somewhere else. Yeah. And then we went to the US and and um, some of them didn't even know who Mario Dragon was. Um <laughs> And so with, with, you know, time passed and, and we were, um, you know, under under deadline, of course, because uh, his term was expiring. So uh, we were very happy with, you know, what we found and with, with having a chance to, to publish in Italy and in Italian, because that's where, um, you know, a lot of people um, are interested in him and, and probably most uh, most people in Europe that are interested in are in Italy. But yes, I mean, it is it is unfortunate. Um, and um, the fact that it was translated into Spanish and into uh, Mandarin uh, is, is, you know, a small, um, in a way, making up for it, but but not. I, I would quite like to see an English version of And let me add to that, and possibly someone is listening to this podcast, is that the Italian publisher Rizzoli has the uh, sort of global rights, including to the English version, a very big uh, literary rights agency uh, had an option for these rights, but as far as we know, nothing has come of it. So, I mean, by all means, go and inquire to Rizzoli if you're interested. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the, the the obvious book to be written in the future would be a comparison of the of the Draghi and Lagardios, but we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. So coming to the substance of the book, can we do some quick scene setting covering Draghi's unusual childhood, his education in the US, how he came to prominence in the Italian policy world in the 80s and 90s, his experience at Goldman Sachs, and so on. So, um, Alessandro, could you take us through that? Yeah, I mean, for someone as reserved uh, as Draghi, he has, uh, I mean, it, there has been a sort of a quite effective myth that has been building about about his how his character developed and and the basic facts are easily told so uh, draghi lost uh, both his parents pretty early uh, in the first years after uh, world war ii uh, as a as a teenager and he was the oldest of several brothers so he kind of had to also look after them financially keeping the house organized he has told about this in one of the very few personal interviews that he gave which was to the german weekly Die Zeit, which at the time had an italian german editor-in-chief and that's uh, that's uh, a rare revealing document and uh, he attended a prestigious uh, high school run by the Jesuits in Rome which was kind of one of the places where the Italian elite was formed and then went on to study economics and one of the things that happened is that Modigliani, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, sent him to study at MIT. Uh, Draghi wasn't the first one and wasn't the only one to be sent to MIT 
Ibrahim Odigliani, who had a strong relationship with that university. But he was one of the few who stayed on, and rather than being a, a visitor scholar, a visiting student, stayed there to complete his PhD there, also working, uh, teaching lessons, uh, having a work even in a technology company for a, for a short time to, to maintain his, his family at the time. And then he returned to Italy, and what was most likely at the time for most people who knew him is that he would have a brilliant academic career. He quickly moved around various universities in uh, in Italy, and I think his last one was in Florence, which was I mean, a pretty prestigious one for someone as young as Draghi was at the time. But then something happened that he got into touch with politics, he got into touch with policy making. It was in the, the mid-80s that the socialists were the, uh, the the party that was in power with Bettinocracy in Italy, and it was sent as Italy's representative um, at the, at the World Bank. He also became an advisor at Bank of Italy, and he started becoming very well known in policy circles uh, uh, at some point, so much so that, and this was really the, the breakthrough for Draghi, in 1991, he was appointed Director General of the Treasury, which was a kind of a new role, or at least the, the way that he was really the, the Mandarin, the, the leading technocrat in, an insti- in, a, in a ministry that was prone to the political instability in Italy. So ministers changed uh, almost every year, while Draghi was in, uh, in that role for 10 years, and uh, he remained with, uh, I think, 10 or 11 different ministers and uh, upwards of 10 different cabinets. So this stability, and it was at a crucial time for Italy because Italy signed up to the Maastricht Treaty in 1992, as we know, and then was working through, working down its debt, modernizing its economy, to prepare for Euro accession. And it was extremely complicated times. And that's where Draghi really became one of the leading policy technocratic figures capable of navigating the sort of preacher's waters of Italian politics, of maintaining the intellectual acumen that made him recognized at an intellectual level, at the same time melding the intellectual aspect and the policy aspect and the compromise aspect that that you need when you may need something to happen with policy and making a big bureaucratic machine work. And what made him move on to the private sector, going to Goldman Sachs from the Treasury? There's various versions of that that can be said, but I think that the most honest version has a, a name and surname, as we would say in Italian, and that's Giulio Tremonti, who was the mercurial finance minister under uh, Silvio Berlusconi for several of the Berlusconi governments. And the two men, to put it uh, diplomatically, didn't held each other in high esteem reciprocally, and there were several Uh, more or less public spats between the two of them, sometimes even visible with the two of them sitting apart at international gatherings. And so at some point, I mean, he basically came out and said, like, you know, I am moving on. I don't feel welcome here. And after a gardening leave, he went on to look at the private sector. And what's interesting uh, that Jana and I uh, found out during his year at Goldman Sachs is that he really wanted to learn the ropes of markets. He went to sit in with traders, trying to figure out really how these people were doing their job, as opposed to just being a, a door opener. Uh, someone was bringing contacts with, like someone with this experience by then was already more than capable of doing. You you talked to uh, Jim O'Neill, who's, who's, who's well-known uh, Goldman Sachs, former Goldman Sachs economist in, in the UK, about about exactly that in the book. And then from there, he became governor of the Bank of Italy, and that, that was because Tremonti had already moved on? Yes, no, they, they, they continue to be, they continue to be sort of at, uh, so what is interesting is that Draghi was actually uh, selected as uh, governor of the Bank of Italy by Berlusconi himself, but at the same time, he, he kept on Tremonti and he kept this sort of low-level tension that sometimes erupted with, with Tremonti. 
So from there, as you write in the book, he came to the presidency of the ECB. It was it was almost by accident. You know, the French, as you write, had already accepted that Trichet would be replaced by a German, and Vito Constancio, a southerner, had been chosen as vice president. So, uh, Jana, can you give us the background to how that decision was made? How was it that the Germans were unable to get their president, and we ended up with, with Draghi as the president of the ECB? Yeah, so for a long time, it looked like um, Axel Weber, the, the Bundesbank president at the time, was destined uh, to go to the ECB and and be the successor of, of Jean-Claude Trichet. But um, as we as we all know, it, it turned out differently. And I I would say there there are several several reasons for that. One certainly um, was that um, the Bundesbank um, and, and Bundesbank presidents and policymakers have always had very distinct um, ideas about what uh, monetary policy in the eurozone should look like. And um, Angela Merkel, the chancellor at the time, uh, may have also had a role uh, to play there. Essentially, uh, when when you ask people these days, and, and Axel Weber spoke about it himself. He, he said it would have been increasingly or, or very hard for him to, you know, assume the presidency and and set policy in a way that he didn't uh, believe was was the right way. And nomination for for the ECB presidency at the time was was taking place in a context where um, asset purchases first moved onto the ECB's agenda. Um, so um, if if we go back to uh, to the break crisis um, to uh, 2010, there was uh, there was a time when you know there was a lot of turmoil in financial markets, and the break crisis was in full swing. It was uh, in early May uh, that the ECB had a meeting um, in Lisbon, as a matter of fact, and um, Trichet was asked there uh, if asset purchases um, had been discussed to stabilize uh, financial markets, and uh, he said no. A few hours later, um, the U.S. stock market slumped. The governing council got extremely agitated at that time because they were wondering whether they had contributed to that. And strangely enough, it was Axel Weber who, at that, at that, uh, after um, after meeting uh, dinner, uh, said, "Well, why don't we look into asset purchases?" And everybody looked very strangely at the time. That he noticed immediately what he had done, and and he backpedaled almost immediately, uh, saying it was you know an academic intervention um, and it shouldn't be taken so, so seriously. But the idea stuck, and uh, it, it just took a few days um, until after the weekend that the securities markets uh, program, the essence, the very first home purchase program, was um, was designed and announced and. Um, Believe it or not, uh, Weber was was the only one who opposed. Um, so that was essentially, in many ways, the beginning of the end of uh, of Weber's candidacy um, for free ECB president. Um, so he he was opposed. He was concerned uh, about um, you know all kinds of things about monetary state financing, about the the difficult incentives uh, such a program would give to governments and and business. Um, and then uh, what happened later in the year, in late uh, 2010, was that the Italians really started pushing for Draghi, and Merkel, on the other hand, had remi- remained silent. And um, she does these kind of things very well, um, biding her time, sitting on her hands, and, and just, just waiting it out. And, and that fueled a lot of uh, speculation over whether she wasn't sure, um, whether she had concerns or doubts, whether Weber didn't want the job. And it, in the end, uh, it, it unraveled relatively quickly um, in, in the winter of 2011, where he quit. Um, he had to go to the chancellery and then, you know, they had another chat, but, but it didn't, didn't change anything. And immediately after, after that, there was a lot of speculation whether he resigned uh, in protest because she, she didn't um, support him enough and she didn't speak out on his behalf. But um, he explained uh, a bit later um, that he, he was just concerned that he wouldn't be able to be a credible ECB president uh, from a minority position on, on crucial policy issues. And um, in many ways, you see with problems that Jens Weidmann had uh, in, during his term what, what Weber was concerned about. 
you both uh, talk about the very different management style that Draghi introduced when he came into the ECB. He'd already established this at the Bank of Italy. I'll, I'll let you both field this. Can you explain how different it was? You have some very funny stories, actually, about his his style, but how different it was from Trichet's management style and also Jana yeah, um, I mean, Christine yeah, Lagarde style. Yeah, let me let me start with with Bichet. I mean, he was uh, the best example of a French civil servant. Very diligent, very much by the book. Endless meetings until deep into the night, following procedures. Um, it was tiring for everyone, uh, including himself. Um, so I remember uh, finding him taking a nap on a couch in the press lounge uh, during. Um, one conference, uh, you know, many years back, just because it was the first time uh, he, he could come across, he came across when entering the building. That's how exhausted, uh, uh, you know, he and a lot of people were, obviously also because of constant crisis fighting. So, so yeah, everything was was lengthy under Trichet, and, and he was very much uh, in control of all things at all times. Draghi uh, very much believes in delegating. Um, so if he tells you, deal with it, um, that's exactly what he expects you to do. You're in charge and uh, you alone are in charge. So Trichet would have checked in with you every two hours um, on progress or given extra instructions. And for Draghi, the problem was just solved. You know, somebody else was, was um, dealing with it. That, you know, got a lot of people uh, very confused at the beginning because they were just not used to it. Um, so the, the, the you know, easing in, um, the, the adapt adapting to, to a new president was, was uh, quite difficult for a lot of people at the ECB. But, but really, uh, in the end, um, my take is that they really appreciated it. So there were no more endless meetings. There, um, there was you know, a lot of confidence and trust um, that once you were put in charge, you got the job done. So a lot of freedom in a way. But, but also, of course, yeah, Jackie had a very um, distinct style of, of decision-making, of of um, working with a very small circle of, of trusted people. And that, of course, left uh, a lot of people who weren't part of that circle uh, on the outside, um, you know, quite quite disappointed. And, uh, and and that created a lot of tensions in the company. How did the two contrasting styles compare to, say, with Christine Lagarde's style? Uh, Christine Lagarde is... Um, yeah, very different from from both of them because uh, what what she's good at is listening to people, giving them room to to air their thoughts, air their arguments, hear them out, and then searching for common common ideas, looking where where tensions could be, and then and then stitching together um, a consensus that everybody can live with. It's a very respectful environment, very different to uh, to Draghi's basically arriving at a meeting with an idea and saying, this is the best idea. I came up with it. I've thought it all through. And you can either say yes. Lagarde hears people out. She she um, tries to learn. And um, of course, she has uh, her background as a lawyer, as a mediator, uh, helps her in doing that. And, and that's um, earned her a lot of respect on the governing council. Um, a lot of people, uh, all people actually really like working with her. Um, because they felt hurt. And it doesn't mean that every decision needs to be unanimous and every decision is debate in everyone, but they feel they, they had their chance to, to talk and, um, and convince people otherwise. So it's, it's a much more harmonious ECB under, under President Lagarde than it was under Draghi. Alessandro, you, you write uh, about a couple of stories about how he developed this reputation for being Mr. Elsewhere. Yes, so this was his his name uh, at the Bank of Italy. But even before he was he was the governor when he was an advisor, and also when he was the, the director general of the treasury. Uh, Draghi doesn't have much patience for endless meetings, as as Jana was saying, and is very tight at. at running the clock and keeping things on time with, with meetings uh, and uh, it can be it can be a bit imperious on that but but the, w- what is really interesting i mean that uh, jan and i found out is that a person like Draghi, i think it's fair to say that has many qualities intellectual as an academic as a as a sort of a person that can find compromise and all that but i think possibly an a sort of underestimated capacity of a, of a policymaker like him is that in a is an 
very good at uh, managing meetings. If you go in a room and Draghi is presiding this, this meeting, you are, can be quite sure that Draghi will eventually get what you wanted from this meeting and that most people in, the, in that meeting will come out thinking that they have come out with a solution that fairly represents what they came in wanting. It's, it's very good at sort of managing a room and making sure everyone, as, as one of the people that we talked to put it, is a, is a, is a fair broker but at the same time, it doesn't let lengthy discussions sort of build a consensus out of itself, but it's managed to create this consensus, which also gives this impression of being sort of imperious and uh, and coming in with a prefabricated position. Because, of, of course, I mean, he very much believes in, in leadership. He doesn't think that the president of an institution like the ECB should just sort of gather the consensus and ratify what's the what's the mood in the room so to speak and uh, any th there was this anecdote which I, I don't think he does anymore that he used to set his his uh, watch five minutes early so he could always be on time and he was always managed to keep a very tight schedule for for everyone so that he didn't restrain himself from cutting someone off when he thought he was going and sort of bringing it back to the conversation at hand, to the topic of the conversation at hand. The book really, I mean, it covers the whole presidency, but the, the three huge moments, the first was July 2012, the second was the Greek crisis, or the, the most acute phase of the Greek crisis in, in 2015, and then the, <clears throat> before that rather, the uh, introduction of Cost of easing in January 2015. You go through the processes that led to each, and they're all very contrasting. So 2012 was done at, at great speed. The introduction of QE was done, was like turning an oil tanker around. And the Greek case was really interesting it, it, in that um, the ECB hardly took part. They, they essentially took one big decision, but apart from that, they, they stood back. I mean, there's three big things to talk about here. So quickly on 2012, You've got really fascinating background to this and this conversation between him and Herman von Rompuy about how there'd been a game-changing decision that led to the whatever-it-takes speech. Can you talk us quickly through the process that led to whatever-it-takes and to the introduction of outright monetary transactions? Sure. I mean, um, there was 2012, the summer of 2012 was a very volatile um, period in, in markets. Um, earlier um, efforts to, to stabilize them were waning, so long-term loans and, and the S&P we talked about. Uh, and Draghi was clearly mulling his options, but but governments were, until that summit, kind of sitting on their hands and, and he wasn't quite sure whether any ECB action would even be successful if, if governments weren't, weren't um, helping and playing along. Uh, and then what happened at that summit is that leaders agreed on uh, on the banking union, uh, on facilitating direct capitalization of struggling banks. Um, there was you know, some budget coordination, more central economic policy making. It was just the plan, all of it, but it, for Draghi, it was a sign in many ways that government are finally committing um, to that union, to making it stronger and to coming up uh, with a plan to, to yeah to strengthen the foundation. So that was that was really a turning point for for Draghi. The the environment in which this took place was was one where market speculation just continued. Um, you had downgrades um, for for uh, Italy's credit ratings. You had uh, a bailout of Spanish banks. Um, you know, looking at Greece, um, you had riots in the streets and and burning burning places. Um, all 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 across downtown Athens. So it was, it was uh, terrifying in many ways. What we, what we found out was that uh, ECB staff was, was working on, on a, blue, a blueprint of a program. They were looking at what they could do to, to stabilize the situation. And um, there was, uh, in early July, uh, an executive board meeting where, where people felt um, that you know, things were coming together. There were sufficient ideas on the table of, of how how um, the program could look like, all um, with, with very strong con conditionality. But no plans were made uh, in that because, because there was no immediate means of urgency. Um, that's when Draghi went to London to uh, to give his famous speech, and um, 
it was the the day before the opening of the Olympic Games. Um, it was a big investor confidence that that he spoke at, where Cameron um, praised the British economy um, and its opportunities for business. And and so Draghi uh, was in this in this environment where where there were yeah there was a lot of energy, a lot of uh, optimism into the future. And at the same time, he was asked um, a lot of uh, very worrying questions uh, on the state of the eurozone economy when he met there. Um, and that's that's when that's when he set out and gave that speech, um, talking about bumblebees and and how uh, the euro is won and, and should graduate. And and uh, it was a very confusing speech uh, initially to a lot of people. And then and then he had this moment where he uh, looked up and and took a took a break and and really looked around the room and then said what he said, uh, we'll do whatever it takes. He did say uh, within our mandate before, but nobody really heard that. As far as he was concerned, he said things that he said a million times before. The ECB is there to defend the euro, but but in many ways the market was listening at this point in time. And um, not a lot of people heard within our mandate. They heard whatever it takes unconditional pledge to support the euro um, and that was what really was the turn after that things happened relatively quickly um, one of the first calls he made was to Weidmann uh, knowing how he how he was thinking about these kind of things and that uh, as as we later learned didn't didn't really help all that much because the Bundesbank came out very quickly um, saying they they don't uh, want um, to stabilize market. But uh, Merkel and and uh, Hollande, uh, the, the French uh, leader at the time, uh, they signaled support, and that was clearly um, the more important one. Uh, and then it, it happened very quickly. Um, people worked on the plan. They outlined uh, OMT in broad strokes uh, in August, um, and uh, they they presented um, all the details that we know today. In September, so it, it was just a few weeks. Uh, in those weeks, the ECB worked on on the plan. Draghi went uh, to lawmakers, uh, told them the ECB had lost control of foreign costs; it needs to enter into respect control, and uh, that plan landed on the table. And um, you know, a lot of a lot of lawyers probably um, worked uh, through the night on on many occasions to make sure it it was legally sound. But that's how it happened. I didn't know until I read your book how bad the relationship actually became between Draghi and Weidmann over time. Yeah, Did- it was not a nice thing to look at uh, in in uh, many ways. There were media reports, you know, some of some of the time they weren't even on speaking terms. I'm I'm not sure that uh, that it went that far. But yes, they they really um, disagreed fundamentally on on certain policies. Uh, and initially, Draghi tried to smooth over the differences. Uh, he talked to German media, tried to 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 address uh, concerns of the German public, um, um, promising to be responsible, saying the disagreements were blown out of proportion. But in the end, he I think he just gave up uh, because Weidmann was very very uncompromising, had his conviction, and he stuck with them. He was very dogmatic in that sense. And it really is a shame because um, Weidmann is, is an extremely well-regarded uh, and very good economist and in many ways a, a very good Bundesbank president who was very well-respected in his institution for the economist that he was and, and, and is. But for, for Draghi, uh, Weidmann really took things too far when the uh, program finally um, ended up in court. Weidmann stood there and essentially declared that uh, the OMT purges on uh, financing governments that is very dangerous thing to say so that's really what damaged their relationship beyond repair Draghi had a nice saying when we spoke about it at one point he essentially pointed me to a quote by Goethe Goethe once once said the Germans make everything difficult both for themselves and for everyone else <laughs> and um, I thought that was that was very telling of, of how he how he viewed uh, the relationship so for most of the rest of the term um, they coexisted, but they didn't really work a lot with each other because ultimately um, Draghi could always be very sure about how Weidmann would argue and how what kind of positions he would take and that it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to try and, and turn him around. So, you know, why waste time? 
The speed of getting to QE in, in January 2015, how much of that do you assign to Weidman himself and the Bundesbank and how much would have been pretty slow in any case because of all the alternative measures that, as you point out in the book, even Draghi himself thought that some of the credit easing measures were, for some time, would have been sufficient? Yeah, I think, um, I think. I mean, Draghi wasn't unaware of the fact that QE was a very difficult uh, instrument in in a currency union, uh, where you have where you have different uh, government, different fiscal policy, where you don't have uh, a joint budget, and um, and a lot of questions needed to be answered before. So, if you have an, another way of reaching the same results, then maybe that is preferable, and and that's what we saw. So really, um, the ECB uh, exhausting every every other opportunity, long term loans, purchasing asset securities, covered bonds. Nothing, nothing worked. Nothing worked at 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 a you know large enough scale. So ultimately, QE was was gonna happen, but still, it was it was difficult. Um, and and even uh, when you look at the design of the original APP program. You, you can really see how how they try to to make it palatable um, to everyone. So there is a lot of the central banks, uh, all the national central banks buy at their own risk. Um, there's no risk sharing. They only buy their own na- uh, national bonds. So the Bundesbank buying German debt, the Banca d'Italia uh, buying Italian debt. And if you know, one country were to default, that country would, and that country's central bank would, would be stuck with the lock not that uh, that's an option, but um, technically that that's how the program is set up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a very a very difficult thing to do, but um, you know Draghi is is the one who got it done, and and Draghi is the one who equipped the ECB with with a very old monetary policy tool that now is here to stay and that can be used in the future. So that's a big achievement as well. Alessandro, I just want to touch on the on the Greek episode. It was very interesting, as you point out in the book, how uninvolved the ECB was. They they essentially chucked it into the hands of politicians. Can you take us through that? It's it's interesting as a way of how Draghi managed to get things done while remaining very much in the in the mandate of the ECB that, as we know, is price stability, and at the same time not sticking to a literal interpretation of this. So. In the in 2000, the first half of 2015, the situation in Greece was that uh, Syriza, the radical left-wing party, had won elections, was in power. Uh, Alexis Tsipras and especially Yanis Varoufakis was the finance minister, and the country was quickly running out of money, which in practice means that uh, Greek banks weren't able to refinance themselves on the market, so finding liquidity to keep paying salaries, to keep the economy going and all that. And the only collateral that they could offer uh, to get this liquidity was Greek government bonds, which, of course, we know at the time, given the situation, wasn't ve- weren't very sound and so couldn't really be accepted to, to do that. And so the one thing, as you were mentioning before, that the ECB did, which was quite dramatic, was to remove a sort of a special condition that allowed uh, Greek bonds to be used as collateral, even as uh, even if they didn't respect, the, the, if they didn't have the, the right rating uh, for this one. With this waiver gone, what uh, Greek, the only avenue that Greek banks had to refinance themselves was by posting short-term debt to the uh, Greek central banks through an emergency facility called ELA, but which is something that the National Bank of Greece does, but of course the ECB has to approve uh, each time. And basically for many months, the ECB kept extending this window that allowed the Greek crisis to play out, the politics and all that. And, uh, and as the political drama unfolded, Draghi refused to act. And what, what could the ECB have done? The ECB could have done, which would have been a literal interpretation of the law. The Greek bonds are not sound collateral, which most likely they weren't at the time. So it's not possible to keep giving euros uh, in exchange for them, which would have basically meant the collapse of the Greek financial system and most likely triggered the switch of Greece to 
an alternative currency, an exit of the euro, Brexit, and all that, all the things that we were discussing before. But this technicality that Draghi refused to make on, on sound technical reasons, because he said Greece is still in the euro, no one has said that Greece wants to exit the euro, so Greek bonds are still a valid collateral, allowed the room for politicians to play out all their drama. There was this referendum that then was disattended and eventually come to the 11th hour agreement that we know of. And uh, and this is interesting because how Draghi did it, did it was by taking a sort of a strong interpretation of the ECP's mandate. So the mandate of price stability also includes price stability de facto includes in this interpretation also the preservation of the euro area. And Draghi was saying there is there has been no political decision for that Greece should or wants to leave the euro. Therefore, I assume that it wants to continue to remain in the euro. And given that Greece wants to continue formally to remain in the euro, then I will continue to extend credit to the Greek financial system. And, uh, and this was a very clever way of acting without acting and uh, not playing the role of the technocrat. Many politicians uh, in Germany and possibly also in Greece would have been relieved if a technocrat had decided to close the tap, as they said at the time, and trigger the crisis that they were playing on the brink, but did no, nobody wanted to be the one that actually triggered the crisis. And eventually, he steadfastly refused to do this technical step and eventually politicians walked back and he could say, you see, I was right all along. There was always a political will, which was inscribed in the treaties to keep Greece in the euro. And therefore, my job was to maintain the conditions for this to happen. And eventually the politicians got there. So th this was, a, I think this was a, the non-action of the ECB was crucial in that, in that crisis time. So I've got one last question each for, for the two of you, starting with Jana. I got the impression in the last, say, year and a half of his presidency that he was in a bit of a hurry and was started to impose his will. Uh, he got Philip Lane in as chief economist, as, as core part of his legacy, and he restarted QE, actually against the wishes of the, of the it appears, against the wishes of the German and the French uh, governors at the time. Do you think that's a fair characterization, that he was he was in a hurry? I mean, he had a very distinct view of the economy and uh, of of the monetary policy, and uh, they probably were um, distinctly different from the German perception. And and by the end, certainly also very different from the perspectives of a lot of his colleagues on the governing council. So yeah, he was convinced the economy was was too weak, that uh, inflation was too weak, um, that there was uh, a, a serious risk that uh, we wouldn't reach the two percent or the below but close to two percent, which which the target was when he was president. And in many ways, was done talking about alternatives and and different views with people that sometimes believed couldn't reach up to him. I mean, if you look around who's on the governing council, not everybody there is an economist. Uh, you have lawyers, you have a, a lot of political appointees. So um, a lot of people do not have intellectual capabilities, uh, the economic uh, excellence that, that John has. And, and that, I think, after a very demanding presidency, just maybe got the better of him a little bit. He, um, had very distinct views on what was necessary to make sure the the economy uh, that inflation reach uh, reaches the target. I think in the end it was also uh, about cementing his legacy, um, uh, about about making sure that uh, policy is uh, is uh, locked in for a while, even even after he's gone. As President Lagarde, um, there was a lot of things were said about her um, before she started not being an economist, being more interested in the, you know, more of the side topics, I would say, uh, on climate change, on, on inequality. And and maybe there was a feeling that it might be necessary to lock in policy to give her a bit of time to, to catch up on, on what it is like to run a central bank and an institution like the ECB. And Alessandro, his, I'm thinking of his, his short career after the ECB as uh, Italian Prime Minister. 
the hopes when he came in were ridiculously high. It was like the second coming. And yet, if you look at what's happened since, you know, every ECB rate rise, there are these political protests in Italy. Does he have a legacy? If, if you look at what has happened since his premiership, has he left something behind? The one legacy that he has left to his go- to, to the current government, to Giorgia Meloni's government, was the 209 billion euro that Italy has secured from European partners as part of NGU about one-third grants and two-thirds loans. And uh, the program was uh, basically written under Draghi in a very short time. Uh, His predecessor, Giuseppe Conte, had uh, an extremely sketchy, I mean, had been working on this for months and months, but in the end left basically nothing. And so Draghi's administration in the very first months had to get up and running very quickly the distribution of the vaccine, which was again lagging behind in Italy so as to allow the reopening of the economy, because of course Draghi came in in the middle of the COVID crisis and uh, and prepare this plan, which was eventually approved by Italy's European partners and therefore now Italy has access to this money. And now, of course, the big problem that Italy has and on which Draghi has no oversight is the actual implementation. Of course, given that it was a mammoth program and that it was done in a very short uh, period of time, there are parts that are probably not 100% easy and possible and realistic to implement, especially after the the Ukraine war. The, The other thing that Draghi did as prime minister was put in Italy, winning even Draghi's initial personal misgivings himself or or doubt or just simply if he wasn't fully aware of the situation of putting Italy 100% resolutely in the pro-Ukraine camp despite Italy's long-running deep ties to Russia thanks to his big communist party thanks to the fact that a lot of the political elite starting with Berlusconi and uh, Salvini, the current deputy prime minister, were deeply compromised with, with the Russian regime and, and Draghi instead, at some point, ditched sort of also concerns of the strong economic ties that Italy had with Russia and put Italy resolutely in the pro-Ukraine, pro-NATO, pro-EU camp. And this is a legacy that is holding for now. And, and for now, Italy has been dispersed a sizable part of the EU money, even though implementation is lagging behind, so the last installments haven't been received yet by Italy. And uh, and I would say, despite this, which is uh, quite significant for what was a short-lived government, uh, even by Italian standards, is that even though all of this in the end, Italian politics had the better of, of Draghi in a way. Draghi was a candidate, even if, if he was not uh, ever officially in the ballot, to become Italian president at the beginning of 2022. It's not clear whether he really wanted the job or he just was sort of sure that he would get the job no matter what and therefore uh, sort of had made his peace uh, with that. But what is true is that Italian politicians in the Italian parliament never wanted to have someone like Draghi at the pinnacle of Italian politics and of the Italian system of power. And after that plan, if it ever was a plan, or even after the possibility dissolved, then the viability of Draghi's very disparate, almost national unity majority was destined to splinter, which happened only a few months later. And then we had early elections and all that. So in the end, the, the, the small politics of Italy had the better, even of someone like Draghi. Yeah. Well, because this is a podcast about books, to sign off as usual, I've asked my guests to recommend a couple each, preferably one broadly from the field and one personal choice. And anyone who follows Alessandro on Twitter knows he's been doing this for years, so we'll be lucky to keep him to two. So starting with Jana, what what have you chosen? Uh, I chose uh, one book uh, that deeply um, inspired me uh, in in my early years of journalism. It's called Rebel Radio by Jose Ignacio Lopez Vigil. 
And um, that is the, the story of Gorilla radio station um, operating uh, during the Civil War in El Salvador in uh, 1979-1992, where people broadcast from the mountain jungle um, and, and told uh, about the hardships of, of that civil war. So that, uh, that's on the nonfiction front. And then for um, book that I that I regularly go back to, um, that I think everybody should read, is Fabian, um, the story of a moralist by Evertes, a German author, which um, essentially tells the story of the collapse of the Weimar Republic. Very much a story about uh, Germany's lost generation right before the Nazis took power. A very powerful book, and if you haven't read it, you should. Right, I haven't, so I will. Thank you. Alessandro, what have you got? On uh, on fiction, I was tempted to to cheat and actually go with two fiction books, but no, I, I will stick to the rules. But can only uh, wholeheartedly recommend Yana's uh, suggestion of Fabian. It's really an exceptional, uh, unbelievable modern book. No, for for fiction, uh, I want to recommend the the Magician by Colm Toybin. It is basically a novelized history of the life of Thomas Mann, and uh, I read it uh, a few months ago. And uh, it made me remember uh, why I was so a bit obsessed by Thomas Mann as a teenager. Um, probably I wasn't a very fun teenager. And um, because he's a, he's a very complex man, probably on the outside, and it shines through the book, on the surface, a rather unpleasant man, but at the same time, with the depths of vision of interest for humanity, which informs his, his books. And if you if you haven't, I mean, basically one of the best things that this book did was prompt me to reread uh, the Brooks and other books by Thomas Mann, which are absolutely astonishing. And if you think that Mann wrote the Brooks when he was 26, it's even more absolutely unbelievable. And as for nonfiction, it's a book by Andrea Wolf, uh, who is a German historian living in the UK, and it's called uh, uh, Magnificent Rebels. It's about an incredible uh, time in the history of European culture and European history overall, which was when over a period of about 10 years in Jena, in what once Eastern Germany, not too far from Weimar, uh, lived together and quarreled exchanged lovers, uh, made friends, drunk together, exchanged ideas, an unbelievable bunch of people, Goethe, uh, that Jana was mentioned before, Schiller, Hegel, Schelling, Fichte, uh, the brothers Schlegel, the brothers Humboldt, and a lot of other sort of minor characters, including an extraordinary woman who will end up being uh, Arthur Wilhelm Schlegel's wife. And uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic story. It's an extremely well-researched book. It could also be an excellent Netflix series. It's intellectually stimulating, and it's, a, and it's just a great story and a great bunch of characters all brought together. Uh, and, uh, and it ends with the uh, famous Battle of Vienna, where Napoleon uh, beat the, the Prussian kingdom and, uh, and Hegel manages to escape that. And even more surprisingly, his, his big book, The Phenomenology of the Spirit, the, the manuscript manages to escape uh, just before the war. It's, it's, uh, it, it couldn't be true. Uh, you couldn't make it up, but it's actually true. Well, today I've been talking to Jana Randolph and Alessandro Spacciale about Mario Draghi, the true story of the man who saved the euro, published by Rizzoli. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you.